You know, being from Florida, any excuse to be able to put on some board shorts and get wet is always good. But there's nothing better than being able to baptize somebody, I tell you. So, hey, if you see Andy, uh, make sure you encourage him and, and just tell him way to go. Uh, but hey, you know, um, just before Christmas, we had some outdoor lights at our house and, and they went out. And uh, that's always a problem for me because, uh, you know, me and like electrical grids and circuits and all, I just, I'm not too good. You know, if it's not as simple as just like flipping the switch on and off again or maybe a breaker, if it goes beyond that, you know, I get in real trouble. It gets over my head real fast. So, you know, I called my dad, and he's walking me through just transponders and electrical wiring and this kind of thing. And then I did some reading, and I'm reading about stuff. And I like to read. I like to learn. And one of the things I was reading about were uh, capacitors, okay? And I, and I read and understand now that capacitors can often be an overlooked and underappreciated part of an electrical circuit, and this happens for a couple of reasons. You know, one, it's not really a flashy piece of the circuit. It's not the power system. There's no, like, buzzing or lights blinking. Capacitor doesn't do those things. It's, it plays a relatively passive role. It has two main functions, really. One, it kind of stores energy for the circuit to be used later. And then, number two, it kind of regulates the way that the energy hits the circuit, so if there's a power surge or something like this, the capacitor, it absorbs some of the energy. It just doesn't let it go all into the circuit and just kind of overflow it. It kind of saves some to, to send to it later. And if there's just a huge surge, just a ton of energy going into the circuit, the capacitor actually absorbs the energy itself and will destroy itself before it allows the whole circuit to be destroyed. And I discovered that some people are so fascinated by this that they've created YouTube channels just to like overflow capacitors and watch them explode. So you, you can just watch it's capacitors just exploding because of this overload of energy. Too much energy, not enough capacity. And so then it kind of raised this question in my mind. What happens to us when our capacitor doesn't have enough capacity. What happens when God wants to give us all this power and use us in a multiplicity of ways, but our capacitor can't handle all of the power that he wants to give us? How do we as Christ followers increase the capacity of our capacitor? As it turns out, Jesus has a lot to say about that in Mark chapter 9. So we're getting right back into our Empowered series in the Gospel of Mark this morning. And just to kind of rehearse where we've been in Mark's Gospel, you know, Mark, he's writing with a whole lot of energy, right? He's like high octane. And he's, he's moving immediately, immediately, immediately. Remember, we've talked about this. And he just goes, he's moving so fast through the details. And he's showing how much power Jesus has. He's, he's demonstrating Jesus. Jesus' power over nature, Jesus' power over disease and sickness, his power to teach, his power to forgive sin, his power even over death. And so for the longest time, really for the first half of the book, the disciples, they just can't wrap their minds around who Jesus is. They're kind of, they're not getting it. And so Jesus, a number of times, is saying, why do you still have no faith? You have little faith. He's, he's trying to get these guys to rightly recognize who he is. And then in Mark chapter 8, 
the light finally goes off. Peter boldly declares and speaks up, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Boom, right recognition of who Jesus is. Now though, as we kind of transition into the next half of the book, the issue is going to be rightly understanding the ministry of Jesus, why he's there, what he's doing, and along with that, what he's empowering them to do. He's increasing the capacity of their capacitor so that they're gonna be able to carry on the mission once he's gone. And so that's what we'll see right here this morning. Let's go ahead, check it out. Mark chapter two, chapter nine, verses two through 29. Mark nine, two through 29, John Mark writes, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead." So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute and whatever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You know, All of us, anyone who loves the scriptures and loves to study the scriptures, 
And for that matter, anybody who just even kind of reads the scriptures casually, there are certain stories in the Bible, certain passages in the Bible that you just kind of wonder about and just kind of think, man, I'd sure love to have been there to see that, right? I sure think, man, that would have been really fascinating to see. I mean, I've got my list, you know, top dozen or so places. Man, I wish I could have been there to see that, you know. Creation, would you start right there? You know, just to be with God in the heavens as he just speaks and then all of a sudden nothing becomes something. I mean, that would be fascinating. You know, to be with Moses when the Red Sea was just split in half and the children of Israel were able to walk through the Red Sea. To be with David when he just had the slingshot and then he takes out Goliath. I mean, that would have been incredible. And of course, just walking with Jesus and seeing him walk on the water and calm storms and heal people and feed the masses just with a little boy's lunch. I mean, all of that would have been fascinating. But you know, one of the most fascinating places that I would have loved to have been is right here at the Transfiguration. Just to see the divinity of Jesus just overwhelm his humanity. You know, we talk at Christmas time about the incarnation of Jesus, God becoming man. So to see Jesus is to see God. To know Jesus is to know God. All of that is true. And we see this just lived out right here in the transfiguration. He is divinity. He is divine. And, you know, this is what the disciples struggled with. They were struggling to rightly identify Jesus as God. Uh, and you can understand why, but oftentimes our struggle, as we kind of look back and we talk about the transfiguration, it can almost be reverse. Sometimes we don't emphasize enough that Jesus is human, right? That Jesus, to see Jesus is to see God, yes, but to see Jesus is also to see how humanity ought to be lived out, what it means to be authentically human. He shows us the plan, the blueprint for what it means to be human. He lived the human life perfectly. He shows us our capacity that when we fully trust in God and God just empowers us in such a way that it, it forces out and flushes out all of that sinful nature, what it looks like to be authentically human the way God designed us to be. But for the disciples, it's the divinity. And so, and this must have been quite a moment, you know, these three disciples up there, Peter, James, and John, just up on this mountaintop with Jesus, and then who knows how it began or how it started, but all of a sudden, there Jesus is being transfigured before them. It says his clothes were just this bright white. The word there for white is lightning, okay? There's just this, this brightness, this intensity to it. You know, it's, it's, it's almost like so bright that you want to shield your eyes, you want to look away, but you can't because it's so mesmerizing, it's so captivating, you've got to see what's going on. This is that. Mark says no, no one could launder clothes this bright, no one could bleach clothes to look this bright, but, but this is Jesus. And he's there, clothed like this, and then here comes Elijah. Elijah, the one, the prophet who called down fire from heaven, and then there's Moses, Moses, the, the recorder and the giver of the law. They're, they're there, and Peter's overwhelmed by this. This is great. This is incredible. Everything that's taking place, they're having a conversation. What were they saying? Luke gives us a little bit of an insight. Mark doesn't tell us anything about their conversation, just that they're talking. 
So what would they have heard? What, what, what exactly were the details of this conversation? Oh, I would have loved to have been there for all this. And Peter, he's, he's overwhelmed. He's terrified, Mark tells us. And he just can't let there be any silence, you know. He's, he's always the one, just his personality. You see it over and over. He's just speaking up. He has to say something. And so he's just kind of spitballing, you know, the first thing that comes to his mind. Oh, this is so great. This is so incredible. Why, why don't we just build three tents right here, three shelters? We've got one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. We'll have our first Holy Land experience right here. It'll be great. People can come, you know, if they want to talk, have questions about Leviticus, they can go to Moses. They got questions about the prophets. We got Elijah, and hey, for you, everything, right? Right here. J- Peter, though, in this moment, he's simply thinking humanistically because he's thinking, this is it. This is the greatest thing. This mountaintop experience, this is so good. This is it. But that's not it. Jesus had much more planned for his life, his ministry, God the Father did for Jesus. And also, in doing that, and putting these three shelters and just saying, yeah, here's what I'll do. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. What's he doing? He's putting Moses and Elijah on the same plane as Jesus. And all, all three of you guys, boom, right there. Jesus is not going to share his glory with another. As, as great as these guys are. Uh, you know, Elijah's great. He was great. He did great things. But the, his vindictiveness still got a hold of him. He succumbed to it. Moses, he, he's a great faithful leader, but his anger got the best of him and he could never soften the hardness of human heart. Couldn't do it. Only Jesus can solve the human predicament. Only he can solve our sin problem. So he's not gonna share his glory with these guys. No, it's Jesus alone. It's what Peter had just said just a little while earlier, really seven days before that you alone are the Christ, you alone are the son of the living God. And so then, as Peter makes this statement, the next scene that you see is just this cloud enveloping the whole situation. And you get the idea that as bright as Jesus was shining, just his clothes and how radiant everything is, that this cloud is so dark that for a moment, it's like you can't even see anything. Like, you know, you can't maybe even see your hand in front of your face. There's just, it's just a cloud that envelops the whole thing. And then the voice of God the Father speaks, this is my beloved son, listen to him. The cloud goes away, and when you're able to see again, Moses and Elijah are gone too. You know, what the Father said from the cloud really was interesting to me. Because you, you think about everything that these guys were seeing, okay? Peter, James, John, they see the intensity of Jesus' clothing. They see Moses and Elijah there. They're up on this mountaintop. I mean, it must have been incredible, everything they were seeing. And then God the Father, he just darkens it all out so they can't see anything. And the instruction, listen to him. Not look to him. Not, hey, pay careful attention to everything. Take notes, you know, look, look, watch. Listen to him. And then you almost expect that right after that, Jesus is going to give some great, like, speech or something. He's going to teach these guys. There's no record of that. There's no record of Jesus saying anything right after that. It's, it's almost like quiet. So what is the Father getting at? Well, it's everything that Jesus has been saying. 
that they've been missing. It's his mission, his life, his purpose. It's everything that he just began to explain to them about in Mark chapter 8. And it's everything that he's going to begin to explain to them again about as they're headed down the mountain. Here's what the Son of Man must do. Suffer, die. The advancement of God's kingdom comes about through the death of the Messiah. And Jesus, he takes them down the mountain and he gives them almost the curious instruction, hey, don't tell anybody about this until the Son of Man has been risen from the dead. And now you get another piece to the puzzle. Jesus is now revealing to his disciples that yes, he's going to die, but he's also going to rise again. And so he's cluing them in to more and more about his mission and his work and his life, his ministry. It's all taking shape. The disciples, that they're confused by all this, right? I mean, Jesus, you're God. We're beginning to understand that. How can this happen to you? Hey, we thought Elijah was supposed to come first. And Jesus, Elijah did come. People didn't recognize him. They'd mistreated him. They did to him whatever they wanted. And Mark just kind of leaves it ambiguous for us. He doesn't really connect the dots, like who is Elijah? What do you, what do you mean that Elijah has already come? You know, do you just mean like the transfiguration right then? Was that it? Well, Matthew spells it out a little bit more that, you no, know, when he's talking about Elijah, he's talking about John the baptizer, that John the baptizer came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He fulfilled this messianic promise. And so now that the baptizer has come, now here's the Messiah who is Jesus. But as you're seeing this, I, I just want you just to notice that Jesus, he takes these three guys up for this like mountaintop experience, right? I mean, sometimes maybe there's some experiences that you've had with uh, the church family, I don't know, maybe, maybe some kind of summer camp or something or a mission trip or things like this. And say, man, that was incredible. That was, that was so good, transformative, awesome. If I could just do that all the time, it would really be great. I'd really have a great relationship with the Lord then. Uh, I mean, sometimes we can point to things like that. Well, this would be that for those guys, right? And it would trump any of those experiences. I mean, here you are, Jesus transfigured right before you. Most in I mean, it's incredible. I mean, you talk about mountaintop experiences, this is that. But Jesus takes them down the mountain. He's not just going to let them stay on the mountain. They come down the mountain. And Jesus is talking about suffering and death, and it's confusing, and it's messy, and all of this going on. Here's the thing. Worship drives mission. Worship drives mission. Like the purpose of Peter, James, and John being up there and witnessing all this isn't simply to see this and say, that's awesome, let's just camp here forever because it does not get any better than this. No, in this life, worship always drives mission. You go throughout the scriptures and anytime you see someone who, who's worshiping, it changes how they act. It causes them to do something. Elijah, he, he sees God high and lifted up. And what does he have? He's got to go tell people. You see anybody who encounters Jesus, they worship him. And then what do they do? They run around. They're telling their friends. They're telling the townspeople, whoever they can find. Worship always drives mission, right? If you have this intensely emotional response to some worship service or something, but it doesn't change the way you live. It doesn't compel you to do anything. It was simply an emotional response. It's not worship until it causes you to act 
Worship always produces action. And here's something else. You learn contentment in the valley, not the mountaintop. You know, you learn contentment in life, not in the mountaintop experiences of life, but in the valleys of life. You, you learn contentment in Christ alone when life is confusing, when life is hard, when life is difficult. You know, we sing songs. We, we sang it this morning that, that Jesus, when we, when we look to you, all our fears are washed away. But is that true? You know, we sing songs like Christ is enough. But is it true that Jesus is all in all? But is it true? You learn the truth of that in the valleys of life. When, when life is hard and when it's confusing, when it's messy, when it doesn't make sense, when people around you aren't acting the way they should or people are saying things about you that simply aren't true, or you're dealing with the death of loved ones, or the sicknesses of friends and things like this. It's, it's when life is hard that you learn contentment in Christ, that you learn he truly is all in all, that he meets every need. You learn contentment in the valley. And let me tell you, this is so important for our world today because there's a gospel that's being preached around the globe that tells us that, hey, the gospel is simply health, wealth, prosperity. You know, it, trust in Jesus, and then it's all good. You know, it's nothing but gumdrops and lollipops the rest of your days. Everything just works out great. It's nothing but glory. But as we go through Mark's gospel, you understand the call to follow Jesus, the call to discipleship, it's a call of self-sacrifice. It's a call of suffering. It's a call to bear your literal cross. And Jesus, the perfect human, the one who shows us what it looks like to be authentically human, he demonstrates this with genuine humility. He demonstrates his self-sacrifice. He demonstrates what it means to serve, what it looks like to love, what it looks like to lay down your life for the sake of others. But the disciples in Mark's gospel, it's not really what they want. You know, I mean, it's not often that anybody really aspires to, I really want to lay down my life for others. I aspire a life of humility and self-sacrifice and suffering. This is, what, this is what I'm after. I mean, you see it, okay? Even, even from this point forward, as Jesus is instructing his disciples in this, and he's using these as teachable moments to teach them, just to go through, you see what the disciples want, okay? You can highlight, underline these passages with me if you want. But Mark 9, 28 the disciples, they want power. Mark 9.34, they want to be great. Mark 9.38, they want to control others rather than to serve others. Mark 10.28, they want rewards. Mark 10.37, they want a place that is right and left. They want recognition, authority. And you can just go on and on. This is what the disciples are after. You know what? A lot of times it's what we're after too, isn't it? Greatness, recognition, authority, power, control. We want the mountaintop. But what we learn from this passage is we must learn contentment in the valleys of life. And those can be hard lessons to learn. There can be a lot of failures along the way. You saw the failure up on the mountaintop with Peter, and now as they're coming down the mountaintop, well, they're entering into another set of failures, really, because of the other nine. 
And so you can imagine the scene, right? They're coming down the mountaintop. They're having this intense theological conversation. Jesus is explaining things to them. They get down there, and then there's quite a commotion. There's quite a scene going on. The disciples and the teachers of the law, there's this big argument going on. You know, the teachers of the law are probably taunting them. Hey, you couldn't drive out the demon and this demon-possessed child. Like, what's, what's going on? And, you know, who, who, how great is your rabbi anyway? I mean, you can imagine some of the conversation that would have been taking place. The crowds are all there. They're joining in. And then as soon as they see Jesus, they just run up to him. And Jesus, what's all the commotion? Why is everybody arguing? And then a man steps forward from the crowd and says, my son, he's been demon-possessed. And the demons take him and they, they cause him to have these seizures and they make him mute and he foams at the mouth and he grinds his teeth and it's just terrible. And I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't do anything to help him. And then Jesus, he just, he just gives this lament. It's, just, it's almost a, a lament of heartbreak here. He says, how long do I have to be with this unbelieving generation? How long? Why? What is he yearning for? He's yearning for his people to be the creation he designed them to be. That we would live the authentic human life the way it's meant to be lived. How do you do that? In complete trust, worship, obedience to the one who created us. And so he's yearning for this. He's longing for this. He's just lamenting this. And he asked the man, well, how long has your son been like this? Because he sees the boy right in front of him having this seizure, convulsing. It's an awful sight. And you can imagine the man, can't you? Any dad, just with tears in his eyes, just you know, from childhood. Oh, and it's just been terrible. The demon takes a hold of him, and there's been times when the demons try to cast him into fire, try to cast him into water, just wants to destroy him. We've had to rescue him so many times, and oh, it's so painful. But if you can do anything to help, please, if you can do anything. And Jesus responds, if you can, unbelief, right? It's still there, unbelief. And so he tells the man, everything is possible for the one who believes. And so the man just fires back, oh, I believe. And I get the idea that Jesus just kind of looks at him, right? He's just said, if, you know, if you can do anything to help. And the man, oh, I believe. And I get the idea that Jesus maybe just looked at him for a moment. And the man says, but please help my unbelief. Please help my unbelief. It's just this raw admission that my belief's not perfect. It's hard, you know. You can, you, I mean, if, you, if you're a dad and, your son's been like this since childhood and you've taken him to different doctors and different religious leaders. You've taken him to the disciples and time after time after time, every time that maybe you start to get your hope up just a little bit that somebody's gonna be able to help him, your hopes are always dashed. Oh, you want to believe. You'd like to believe. And maybe there's a part of you that does believe, but there's still this part. Nah, I don't know if this time's really gonna be any different. We've all been there, haven't we? Maybe, maybe there's loved ones out there and we want so desperately for them to know Jesus and we want to believe. 
the Jews will capture their heart and get a hold of them and will change their life and will transform them just the way that he's transformed you. But you know the way they live? You know how hard they are? You know every time you try to bring up the conversation, how they shut it down, how they mock you, make fun of you for your belief, and oh, it's just a crutch, whatever it is. It's hard. You, you want to believe that God can use you to make disciples, that you can impact others. You say, I know myself. <laughs> I know my limits. I know my personality. I know whatever it is, whatever I can throw out there. I just, I'd like to think God could do that, but you know, there's part of me I, I just kind of doubt. She says, everything is possible for the one who believes. If, you be, if you're fully dependent upon him. And so... The boy, he convulses one last time as Jesus commands the spirit to come out of him. And it's so violent, it's so terrible as the spirit comes out that then the boy, he's just laying there, he looks like a corpse. Everyone thinks he's dead. And Jesus, in his tenderness and his mercy, he bends down, he grabs the boy's hand, he lifts him up, helps him up, he's fine, completely fine. The disciples, they just can't make sense of the whole thing, you know? And so as soon as they get the chance, back to they get the home that night, in private, they ask Jesus, why couldn't we drive it out? What's wrong with us? Why couldn't we do it? You know, the disciples have the same problem that we do. They're just looking at themselves, aren't they? What's wrong with us? How come we didn't have the capacity? You know, they're eager to engage in arguments and defend themselves. They're undisciplined in their prayer life. They lack faith, all these things. I mean, you just go through, and it's us oftentimes, isn't it? We can so often be undisciplined in our prayer life. We can get defensive. We can engage in arguments. We can kind of try to defend ourselves and what we're doing. We can make our case. And you know one of the things I love about this is that Jesus doesn't just say, you know, I mean, this is enough, guys. I come down the mountain, the nine of you, you're making a mockery of the whole mission. You started an argument in front of the whole town and religious leaders. Why? Because you have no faith. If you simply believed, if you simply would have really prayed, you, you, but your capacitor is limited. I need guys with more capacity. I mean, he didn't just flunk them out. He didn't just like discard them and say, you know, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get some new ones. You know, I mean, Peter's up here just running his mouth off in the middle of a thing, in the middle of this you know, precious moment, we come down here, now this, nah, I, need, I need 12 new ones. Jesus doesn't do that. And he doesn't do that with you or me either. He doesn't just cast us aside and say, you know what, you flunked out, you failed. No, like a good parent, he, he takes the time to say, no, this is a teachable moment. You failed, yes, but this is a learning opportunity. And isn't that what any good parent does, right? Your kid fails, it's not just like, oh man, what am I ever going to do with you? You're never going to get it. You're, ah, you know, you can live here, but that's about it. I mean, nobody, nobody, no good parent does that, right? It's a teaching opportunity. And it's not just behavior modification. Not just, okay, here's the formula that you need to memorize. Here's the technique that you need to have down. It's not that. No, it's shepherding the heart. And you do the same thing with kids, right? Your kid says something that's untrue, tells a lie, and it's not simply, hey, from now on, you tell the truth. No, you shepherd their heart. Hey, how, is God truthful? Yes, God is always truthful. How do you know that? Well, because he tells us in his word 
who he is, who we are. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. He speaks plainly, directly, clearly to us. He's truthful. Well, then how then are you to act? Well, we should be truthful to others. Great. What do you need to do in this situation? I need to apologize. I I need to be truthful. You shepherd their heart. It's not just behavior modification. And Jesus is doing the same thing here with with, uh, the disciples. It's not just, boom, let's change the behavior. It's let's shepherd your heart so that you get this, so that you understand. Here's the whole idea, that we grow from our failures. You grow from your failures. You know, one of the most frustrating things is when you fail and fail and fail and fail and fail again the same way doing the same thing, right? When you just never learn, that's when it becomes really frustrating. It's like learn from this, grow from this, become better from this. How do you do that? Well, you pray, you seek God. You go to his word, you study his word. God, help me understand my heart attitude here. What's the heart behind the action that I'm producing? God, conform my heart. I'm just pleading with you that you conform my heart to be shaped like the heart of Jesus. That I would live and I would love and I would serve and I would sacrifice. I would lay down my life the way Jesus does. God, conform me into the image of your son. It's that type of pleading. That's how you grow. That's how you learn. You know, failure stems from deficient faith and insufficient prayer. Failure in life stems from deficient faith and insufficient prayer. The disciples, they think they have the power, that we're the power system. We've got it. We should be able to drive this demon out. There's got to be something wrong with what we're doing. See, it's deficient faith because their faith is ultimately in themselves. It's got to be us. There's something wrong with us. Yes, this is true, but what's wrong with you, you cannot fix. What's wrong with you, only God can fix. Only he can do this through you. So it's deficient faith. And what does that result in? Insufficient prayer. Why? Their prayers are mute. You don't need to pray to God when you think you should be able to do it. And so there's no prayer going on. And Jesus, when, when he's saying prayer here, what these guys are thinking, you know, they're thinking we, didn't, we couldn't do this because our technique is wrong. You know, maybe there's some kind of script that we're to memorize as we try to cast out the demon. You know, if we have this thing rehearsed just right, and we say it just right, we do, that what Jesus is saying prayer is this dependent prayer of faith where you reckon it's not a script. It's not some memorized verses or something like this. No, no, it's, it's just walking humbly in, uh, in community with God and just, God, there's no way I can do this. This is beyond me. I need you for this. And it's this humble admission. You know, and you see this throughout the scriptures. Jesus never gives the disciples some kind of technique. Sometimes in churches, we, we long for like the technique. Tell me the questions that I have to ask. Tell me the verses that I have to memorize. Tell, give, me, give me the formula. And then I can evangelize. Then I can make disciples. Jesus never does that. Why? Because it's always born out of relationship. 
It's always born out of relationship. You're enamored with Jesus. Good news can never just be kept quiet. Good news always has to get out. And because of the relationship, because you are so mesmerized, enamored, captivated, transformed by Jesus, you must share. You see it over and over again in the scriptures, and it's the same thing here. It's the same thing here. You don't get ready for the moment in the moment. You're ready for the moment because you live a life of dependent faith praying in conversation with God, God, conform me, transform me, mold my heart into the image of your son. And then when you combine like dependent faith and persistent prayer, boom, Jesus, that just unleashes God's power. Boom, God's power released. So, you know, the disciples, they must have felt so just useless, you know, just like utter failures as they're trying to heal this boy and cast out the demon and they just look like a failure in front of everybody and there's an argument and they're just thinking, I never want to look that absurd again. Just just give me the technique. And Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 no. If you want to increase the capacity of your capacitor, it's not just technique. No, you learn contentment in the valleys of life that you trust in the valleys when life is hard, when life is difficult, that Jesus truly is enough that he really is all in all. You learn that. You walk humbly with him. You grow from your failures. You're constantly, hopefully, I pray that in 2023, by the end of it, we look more like Jesus than we do today, right? Because we're walking with him. We're growing. We're we're learning from failures. And then we combine that dependent faith with persistent prayer. And the all that God wants to do in and through us, well, our capacity to see that lived out and to see it actualized, it goes way up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you are just such a good and gracious God to us. We're overwhelmed that you would choose to use us because we know ourselves. And so, God, this year, God, will will you just teach us contentment with you? in the valleys of life, um, just that you truly are enough. And God, will we just be totally dependent upon you? Will we be persistent in our prayer, just pleading with you that you would conform us into the image of your son? We recognize we need your help. We cannot do this alone. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.